Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Vintage Motocross Radio. I am your host, Joe Abadi. Before the show begins today, I want to thank some of our sponsors who helped make this all possible. I'd like to thank Amsoil. They were the first in synthetic oil in 1973. Preston Petty Products, the legend continues with Preston Petty. Of course, Vinco, keep the ride going. I'd like to encourage all of you after the show today, if you would, to go visit any of those sponsors, Amsoil, Preston Petty, or Vinco. They're also a huge help to us on our Wednesday night show, Vintage Motocross Q&A. Also at this time, I'd like, if you can, to remind you to hit the share button. Maybe get some of your friends come over, listen to our interview this afternoon. So if you can, hit the share button, let some other folks know what's going on there. My guest this afternoon, well, I would consider him to be a renaissance man. He's talented in so many different areas, including being a pilot, an engineer, a machinist. He's also gotten involved in real estate as years have gone on. We know him all here in the vintage motocross world uh, from Mike's Mako Center. And my guest this afternoon, and it's a pleasure to have him here, Mike Chamberlain. Mike, are you with me? I'm here, Joe. How are you doing? I'm doing real well, Mike. I want to thank you for taking the time to uh, sit down with us on this Sunday afternoon. I know you're recovering from a bit of surgery, and I hope that's going well for you. It's uh, hanging in there, doing pretty well. Well, that's all we can ask for, Mike. Hey, let's get right into it. Tell me a little bit about your early career with motorcycles or what sports you may have been involved in before that, uh, your school days. Let's, let's start off pretty early in the story, Mike. What was it like? Okay, we'll get the boring stuff out of the way first. <laughs> the first eight years of my life, I lived in upstate New York. Um, that was about all there was to it. The only thing I remember from that time is I remember getting in trouble for taking people's lawnmowers apart. <laughs> so... Whatever that was worth. Hey, Mike, I have to ask you. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I got to know because I grew up in New York State, too. Where in New York State were you? A little town called Olean. Okay. Which is about 50 miles below Buffalo. I see. So you're taking... Where they get 25 feet of snow. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so I I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I had to know what town that was. So you're in trouble for taking lawnmowers apart. There's got to be something more to it. Well... Not so much. I mean, I was always mechanically inclined. My dad was an MIT engineer, brilliant man. Um, I'm sure some of it rubbed off. Mm -hmm. So anyway, he got a great job offer out here, and we moved out to Southern California in 1959, and he was working on the Apollo project with the astronauts. And, uh, you know, I was third grade, I believe, I moved out here. And at that time, that's kind of when I start remembering life, actually. Uh-huh. Um, I, one of my first friends there was was a guy named Jim Gregory. And we met in third grade together. And I was in all kinds of sports. I mean, I, motorcycles were the furthest thing from my mind. In reality, I was really into gymnastics and football and swimming and diving and all kinds of stuff like that. And Jim's parents bought a couple Honda 90s. And uh, so we went out riding, and the next day, three of us ran out and bought libido boltacos. Boltacos? I, I convinced my parents it was a good idea, and I, I put lights on it and, and tried to drive it to school. But you should have seen a libido going down in Turtle Boulevard. It was <laughs> kind of interesting. So you, you had the so, the bo- I'm sorry. That was it. We started liking motorcycles. I bought an Osa after that. Yeah. 
Go ahead. No, no, go on. You're doing great. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you. I'm not hearing you, Joe. Can you hear me okay now? Oh, there we go. Okay. Oh, okay. Well, I was just going to Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Well, uh, you know, so we had these little libidos, um, way too small for me. I bought an OSA for 15 minutes, it seems like. <laughs> bought a couple Honda 305s, tried to make them work. And then something happened in 1966 and 67 when Joe Robert and Torsten Hallman and all these guys came over, and that was it. I ran out the next day. I got a job at Valerian's Two Cycle City with a deal that I could buy a Husky at cost. So I got my first Husky Viking, and we were off to the races. And, you know, things went pretty good on that bike. Um, I was always kind of a guy like Kim the Tool Man. I always wanted to make something a little better, mm -hmm. a little faster, a little lighter somehow. And uh, I put a fuel-injected pumper carburetor on that Husky, and there wasn't anything in town that would keep up with it. A fuel-injected so, pumper carburetor in 67? Yeah. Wow. 68 probably then. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah, they were running them on go-karts and stuff, and I, I knew this guy, Kendrick Engineering, and he uh, fixed me up, and boy, did it work good. It was amazing. Now, you raced so, that, did you race that sorry. bike, Mike? How many times did you race it? Oh, every other weekend. Oh, okay. I mean, Bay Mare was my little home away from home, and, you know, Indian Dunes wasn't invented yet and stuff, so it was pretty much, you know, Bay Mare and some places, Huntington Beach, and there's a few tracks around. Um, pretty successful at that time. I, I, I got pretty good on it, actually. I achieved AMA number nine, I think it's 68. And, uh, coincidentally, the very next year, I was number nine again. I don't know how that worked out. Number, I was number five in 71. But there's, you know, I was pretty fast. I won some races. I wasn't the fastest guy in town. There was a handful of guys that could always beat me like Jim Wilson and John DeSoto and Jim Hart and Jim West and you know some of these guys I couldn't beat but I, I could win a few races in there somewhere well so. Mike you know you got to say this though too I mean the names you just mentioned they weren't just some guys who were a little bit faster than you they were guys that went on to become very successful in the sport of scrambles and motocross in their career so you were up there oh, up, up there with some fast guys no question about that Right, and I know every rear tire they ran. I watched them a lot. <laughs> hey, hey, Mike, tell me a little bit more about Cole Brothers. You worked at Cole Brothers for a while. Well, yeah, that was a, a, a little intern job. I mean, uh, let me back up one step before that. Sure. Um, uh, when I was riding the Husky, um, I beat these guys. I, I won a race out at Bay Mare, and I beat... There was a guy named Rudy Drago who had RD Sports Cycles, and he had a team of guys. And it was Bill Payne and, and some others, and, and they were supposed to be the hottest thing there was. And I beat them all. So they walked over to me very nicely and said, how would you like to ride with us? And I said, sounds good. And I hung the Husky up and got a Mako. And then we created the RD Sports team, which was really a novel thing. I, I, I We get... We got more publicity than we probably ever deserved. We painted the bikes jet black, tanks, everything, helmets, and wore gold jerseys. And everything was black, but that gold. Mm -hmm. And we'd line up and put the bikes all bitching at the interim and everything. I, and I swear, we were getting more attention than the Europeans were. It was, it was just absolutely amazing. 
and we were pretty good. You know, again, we were we weren't the very best, but we were pretty good. And um, you know, I've, that as things went on, you're right. I got the job at Cole Brothers, who mm-hmm. was a Mako dealer and a Suzuki dealer. Worked on some bikes there, and in the back of my head, this is about my first year of college. Um, I told my parents, you know, I think a, a motorcycle shop's probably the way to go here. So they agreed, and they took my college money and helped me get, you know, Mike's Racing Center going. And, uh, well, before that, I should skip back to something. I mean, when we're talking about riding on the Mako and the good stuff and everything, there's there's, there's a few things I ought to mention in here. Uh, one of the funny stories was the East-West Series. And uh, that was when uh, Jim Wilson was the captain, and they took a whole bunch of guys, and we went back to Pepperell. The only reason I got to go is because I volunteered to drive the truck. Okay. So I went back and raced Pepperell, got number nine, pretty fun deal. And then we come back, and I had another race that was pretty fun, and it was a team race for two hours that Joe Vellon and I did. And we won the biggest money purse at time ever, it seemed like it was five hundred dollars. I mean, a motorcycle cost a thousand then. Where was that race, Mike? That race was at Baymare too. Okay. The place I knew like the back of my hand. Mm-hmm. And then the, the Interam came to Baymare and I wrote the sport class and probably one of my better finishes, Bob Messer won and I got second. And it was on uh, you know, the wide world of sports and everything and we were pretty excited about all that and Pretty cool stuff, man. I mean, that's, you know, like I said, I people think I, I'm not the greatest racer in the world. I was pretty good. But um, you opened a motorcycle shop next, which was Mike's Racing Center. Yeah. Now, I wanted and, to ask you uh, about that, Mike, because Mike's Racing Center was was really renowned throughout the country. Everybody knew about it. And you were perhaps the biggest Mako dealer in America at that time. How many how many bikes did you start off with? How did how did the importing how, how did that all work out? What was it like to be a Mako dealer at that in, in that time? What year was it that you began? Well, seventy one, okay. and it was interesting being a Mako dealer because you put orders in with Cooper Motors for mm-hmm. like you know I want two fifties and this and that. And you maybe put a color in there, so well you never got to pick the color. Whatever they came, you got. Mm-hmm. And every time every time a new set of bikes came something would be different on them. So you, it was kind of like you never knew what you were getting. So it was pretty interesting back then, you know? I mean, dealer cost on motorcycles were like 700 bucks for a 250 and like 900 for a four, 360 at that time. And uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was an interesting time. It, it's, it, it, I don't know, it was just interesting because people would want to come in and order something and you didn't know what you were going to get. Mm-hmm. So it was always a surprise. But what I did at this time, and I'm sure this is what people would like to hear about, I wanted to put Mike's Racing Center on the map, and there was two, let's say three ways to do it. I could have been the fantastic racer like Malcolm Smith, which didn't happen, or I could get the greatest riders around, which kind of did happen, and I could build bikes that stood out, that got a lot of attention. So... It came along one day, this guy came to me and said, hey, how would you like a titanium frame for a Mako? He was an aerospace guy. He built three or four of them. I think Lars Larson used one and stuff for, for, for Huskies, I, I mean, on him. And he built one Mako one or two Mako ones, and I said, you know what, I'll, I'll take one. The, the frame cost more than the whole motorcycle did. 
It was a thousand bucks. The motorcycle cost like eight hundred. Okay. Now, while while those Mako engines at that time were pretty consistent throughout the years, as far as the cases being the same, what what engine was your frame built for? Well, yeah, good one. It, it's uh, I wanted everything was going to be as light as could be. So even though there was a big clutch coming along, we used the little clutch, so it would be smaller and smaller side case. Yeah. And we did things like we used the Yamaha front wheel because the Mako front wheels were just boat anchors. Mm -hmm. And the brakes didn't work that good anyway. So we automatically switched to Yamaha front wheels and stuff like that. And then everything on the motorcycle, I made titanium axles, everything. And, and you know, we were even getting into the thought of, of hollowing out transmission shafts and stuff. We didn't quite go that far. But, I mean, everything you could lighten, we did. We had a plastic tank that didn't look like a Mako tank. And, you know, this whole bike ended up weighing about uh, 192 pounds. Now, Mike, and Mike, a, as a machinist, yeah. as a machinist, a young machinist at that time with that bike, were you making these, were you making the hardware and the axles yourself out of titanium? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Oh, mm -hmm. okay. Okay, so yeah. you're, you're making and the... Right, there's a picture running around of a square barrel that has like 200 holes drilled in it. But yeah. they're drilled very precisionly and very exactly. It's not cobby or anything. And everybody goes, oh, will it cool right or will it do this? I mean, the thickness of those fins, you pick up surface area on the inside of the hole and, you know, it worked just fine. And we lightened everything we could, um, literally everything. <laughs> I, I mean, even the little flaps that would hold the airbox on, everything were titanium, everything was turned into aluminum, there was steel, and uh, it worked, you know, the bike was amazing. It was absolutely amazing. So let me ask you this, Mike. Let me ask you this. Did you or anyone from your shop ride that titanium Mako competitively? Yeah. Uh, in fact, I, yeah, I did a few times. Um, I did some photo shoots with magazines with it. Um, Larry Watkins rode it once, and he went so high off a jump when he came down, he broke the foot peg off. <laughs> and uh, getting titanium repaired was interesting, but I had one of the greatest welders around, which I'll talk about later, uh, who could weld titanium, and he could fix these things for us and stuff. And it was pretty cool, and, you know, Lars had his going, and a few people were jumping on this bandwagon, and AMA came right out and outlawed them. So that was kind of the end of that for racing. But it was certainly an interesting motorcycle. I mean, it was it, it it led us on to what became bigger and better things. Because if you want me to go into the story now about moved up shocks, this is where it transverses. Actually, Mike, I uh, want to I want to go back just a moment because this is very okay. very interesting to me, and, and I think the the uh, the listeners would want to hear about this too. At your young in your young career, right there at the at the racing shop and with all the bikes and whatnot. You actually bought a plane at one point. You were a pilot. Yeah. Well, yep, what, yep, that's true. What, um, what kind uh, of plane had that come about? Well, um, the same guy I talked about that got me into motorcycles who was working for me in my shop a little bit, Jim Gregory. Mm -hmm. uh, he and my dad, and we went in partners on a Cessna Cardinal. Uh, my dad was a pilot in the war, and um, I always wanted to do everything, so I wanted to fly, and we bought a plane, and we flew it a lot. We got sucked into one of these leaseback things, you know, where you're supposed to make a little money by leasing it back for other people, but those don't work out. It costs way more to do that than just own it outright. 
But uh, yeah, we flew it all over. It was fun. I um, I flew to Carlsbad GP one time. I flew up to Mammoth Mountain, took a bunch of guys one time. It was fun. I love flying. I still love flying. I I I had the opportunity for a guy to teach me to fly, who was name was Fish Salmon or Herman Salmon, which was Rick Salmon's dad. Mm-hmm. He was one of the most famous test pilots in the world. Him and Tony Lillier were Lockheed's number one test pilot. Well, I got time locked in airplanes with this guy, and I'm just very, very fortunate. And I got my license through Rick Salmon's brother, and that's how it all came about. And, uh, yeah, I, I've loved flying ever since. I We did end up selling the plane after a while because it really just did cost a lot of money. Sure. And, uh, you know, and we were kind of all going our different ways at certain points, so... Now, Mike, it, when, when people think about Makos, and certainly when we see some of the pictures of your bikes, um, a, a lot of us think, of course, of Wheelsmith at that time, too. What was your relationship with Wheelsmith, if you had one, or were you just two different dealers at two different parts of the state? Well, the, your second thing is correct. I mean, I, you know, we were in our own little world up here in the north end of L.A., mm-hmm. and uh, I knew about him. Um, I was never competitive with other shops or any of this. We were just doing what we could do the best we could do it. Right. You know, and he was down there doing his thing, and I was up here doing mine. We we never even got to really meet each other till you know, 40 years later, when everybody's gotten back together these days. Um, so, you know, he had, um, he had Mosier, and he had some of these guys. They were fast. They were trying things. Um I think they kind of followed a lot of our things that we did, like the moving of shocks up and things like this. Mm-hmm. But uh, he was a sharp guy. He was on it. They had a good shop, no doubt about it. Well, he Mike, that a lot of motorcycles. He, he sure did. He sure did. And now, this really does bring us up to the point that uh, is very, very interesting about about your career and about Mako's as well. Let's get into this long travel era of suspension. Who had the idea first? What did you contribute to that? And uh, what what could you tell us here that uh, we may not know about that whole era? Okay. Well, first of all, I did not invent long travel suspension, which I've been labeled with all over town. (laughs) Okay. Um, It worked out where the ideas started to come from when I had my titanium bike. Werner Schutz, German guy, German Mako guy, used to come over and live with me and stuff. And, you know, we're out there one day or something. He wanted to bring Willie Bauer and these guys over and show him my bike. So they came over. And we're playing around with this titanium bike and everything. And they're all talking in German to each other. And I'm trying to figure out what they're saying. And uh, we came to the conclusion, if you weren't over a jump, it wouldn't come back down good. <laughs> it would just keep going too high and, and, you know, break and fall apart. Oh. So... You know, and it triggered our thoughts about, you know, what if we had more travel? What, 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 maybe this would work better? You know, things like this. And I know Willie and I talked about this stuff a little bit and whatever. And I also know that back in Germany, Hans Meisch was tinkering around with this too. And he was doing it because Adolf was complaining his rear wheel was hitting the fender too much. So they started moving the shocks a little bit to get a little more clearance for that. Obviously, they were stumbling into the wonderful thing of long travel suspension, which we were doing just about at the same time over here. 
And it's not an invention. It's just re-engineering something. It's like I said, the tool, you know, Tim the Toolman Taylor trying to make something better. So here's how the story went. I had this idea. Yeah. I talked to uh, Jim O'Neill about it, who wrote for me, and, and we were real close friends. And he goes, Mike, take my bike and try your idea. So I got out a hacksaw and my torches, and I went to town, and I made this thing a little bit cobby-looking and whatever. And it was done, and we threw on the shocks, and we ran out to uh, Indian Dunes, and we took one of other one of um, Jim's other bikes and and this bike, and we got out, and went through the hoops, and timed it, and, and it was just. It was just night and day. The riders would switch bikes, and the same thing would happen night and day, night and day. Well, the drawback was you could do that two or three times, and then your conies turned bright blue or oh, red hot, either the, one. Yeah. They couldn't take it. I mean, the shocks went away literally in about 10 minutes. They were just not designed for that kind of thing. So, you know, the, the engineering of moving shocks up and everything really wasn't the big challenge. The challenge now became to get shock absorbers that could work. And we were taking conies apart and trying different fluids, and we were doing this. And I got a friend of mine, who I'll refer to later, Mr. John Maroney, who has one of the most amazing machine shops in the world, uh, said, let me try something here. And we built some aluminum bottoms for conies. You take the coney top shaft and screw it into this aluminum body and it was a lot bigger and held more oil. Worked way better. So we know we're on to something here now. At the same time, you know, I, I'm trying these crazy things. I took a shock body, a big square piece of aluminum, and I put two shocks in it. Mm -hmm. One with a spring and one without. And just so you know, they I'm thinking maybe we're doubling the duty here so they could each handle it better. And, you know, our that would never work out. It would be too costly. You'd have $1,000 shocks or something when you're done back in these days. It would be way too expensive. So anyway, John Maroney, who made the most beautiful, they call them Coronis, the most beautiful bodies you can ever imagine. But he's got his own aerospace business. He can't just be doing this and doing production. And all of a sudden, we started doing these frames. And it caught on like wildfire. Uh, I couldn't do them fast enough, and I got a name, guy named Carol Dixon, who was an extremely great welder, and he made all the, the tabs up and bent the tubes and got everything ready, and we were putting these frames out right and left as fast as we could. Let's slow down we one sec. Let's slow down one second, Mike, because I want people to understand what year this was happening in. Everyone's familiar with the 74 and a half GP bike where the bars are bent and seeing certain things on there, but you were doing that before that. We were doing it in the late '72, early '73. Ah, okay. Well, I think that's a very, so, you know, a very important time. Uh, well, it, well, it is because it's way, way, way before anybody was doing it. Okay. Now, makeover in Germany was tinkering with this at the same time because when their factory guys came over about six, eight months later, they had shocks laid down. It wasn't in production for them yet, but it was close. So anyway, we. Um, the funny story is, you know, these frames were were so neat and everybody just had to have it and nobody knew what to do. And we'd have people coming with other models besides Makos, you know, Huskies and CZs and everything. They'd just walk in and bring their frame. Can you do it? Yeah, we can do the same thing to it. And we did. And, and 
it was just kind of funny because I see some of the factory guys all of a sudden with these frames out there using my frames. They just send some little guy in to get it done so they didn't know who we were doing it for. I think Suzuki did it. I think Honda did it. Uh-huh. And, you know, and, and it's just not rocket science, okay? Understand that. All you could do is copy the geometry. We're still back to the shock problem. And I couldn't get them made fast enough. And that was the problem for everybody. And you saw people try front forks on the back of the bike. They tried everything. I mean, we were trying the craziest things in the world to see what they could make work. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, it was tough. And a guy named Kurt Benke came along, and he had a machine shop. He goes, you know, we got time to make those things. And he started making them by the hundreds. And... No, we we couldn't get them fast enough from them, and we were just pumping them out. And it would have been a good time if I was smart enough or whatever to patent something back then. But you know that didn't occur to me. We were just having fun making things go fast. So Benke apparently was just making the 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 body for the conies. Is that it? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. That's exactly right. And he couldn't do it, and he, you know, he couldn't keep up with them. And, it, you know, and everybody started doing this then. I mean, I know Greg Smith started doing it, and and, and everybody did. I mean, you see this, you're going to go, it's so much different. It's like having a different class bike. Yes. I mean, it's the biggest change in motorcycling that probably ever happened at one time. Mm-hmm. I mean, can you imagine an old bike with four inches of travel going over a triple today? No, I mean, you know, let's face it. You know, we, we've, we've all tried to go back out there and race vintage bikes again in the past 20 years. And, you know, you think to yourself, and you don't have the kind of jumps you have in Supercross, but you think to yourself, how, how did we do this 40 years ago on, uh, on, that kind of, on that kind of suspension or without that technology? So, yeah, I mean, I can only imagine when moving up those shocks and, and making modifications to frames and doing the things that, you know, you're, you're famous for doing, how much of an improvement it actually was so um yeah it was just it was just it was it wasn't just a subtle change i mean everything usually comes in subtle changes this wasn't subtle this was dramatic yes it was and you know so it it just caught on like wildfire everybody started doing it and you know i mean i i never claimed it was me or anybody else i mean it's it's not yes we were the first people that started doing it in the country that that's a fact but uh you know, I, I don't own it. I'm not trying to own this thing or whatever. I mean, we did it. It worked really good. And uh, it was pretty funny. Everybody had to have it. And uh, I remember Jim West started writing for me about then, and uh, I did his frame. And he got out there, and his dad had an idea for shocks. You know, everybody was trying things with shocks. So he made these shocks with big coolers on them to held dry ice. Yes. I don't know if you've ever seen pictures of that. I have, you know, I have, Mike, and you know what? It was on my list of questions for you. It's wonderful that you brought it up. Continue. What happened there? Well, I mean, he tried it, and, uh, you know, yeah, I guess it helped some. Um, it, it really wasn't the answer. It's, it's What we needed was a shock absorber company that knew what they were doing to come along and build a heavy-duty shock. Mm-hmm. I mean, things went to monoshock after a while, so they managed to make one shock do the thing for the whole thing. So it was just a matter of designing a better shock absorber. And, um, you know, I didn't, uh, I, 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 I worked for the aluminum bodies and all this kind of stuff. You know, I didn't ever get into the spot where we were trying different valving or completely starting over with shocks. Um, I was kind of too busy doing what we're doing. 
And, you know, about now, my racing center's got a lot of good racers going with them, and I'm pretty busy trying to take care of them. And uh, I'll tell you something. If you ever want to wreck a racing career, open a motorcycle shop. <laughs> and <laughs> <And> you... <laughs> That's about it. You know, you never have time to travel. You never have time to do anything. Yeah. So. And and you had some great guys riding for you, too. You had Jim O'Neill, Tim Hart, Jim West, of course, the great John DeSoto, Rick Selman. Uh, you, you had a lot of talent come out of, out of your shop. There's no question about that. Yeah, and that's probably what I'm the most proud about. I mean, I did. I had the greatest racers. I mean, every, you know, Tim Hart went straight to factory after me. Yeah. And, and, of course, Jim West died on my bike, which is very sad. But, uh you know, uh, Billy Payne, he kind of, I don't know what he did. He went on for, well, what he ended up doing, which is the next story in the whole saga here, is in about 75 or 6, somewhere in there, he wanted, he talked to me about buying the shop from me. And it was kind of right after um, Jim West died and stuff, and yeah. I was a little dismayed with things. Sure. And uh, so I said, you know what? I'll tell you what we'll do. I'll sell you my, I'll sell you the dealership and I'll set up my machine shop in the back of your shop and we'll work together. Okay. And they go, okay. And he, he had a money guy behind him and stuff like this. So, um, yeah, you know, it didn't work out that great and the partners never really do. Um, so after a while I moved my machine shop back out behind his shop and, um, uh, that's a whole other story for a little more later, but um, what else did you want to know about Mike's Racing Center? Well, I, no, I, 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 I do recall you, uh, you know, having a little falling out there with Billy and you opening up uh, an MRC precision behind him. And, and mm-hmm. but in, in a, uh, wow, in a, in a totally different direction, although still in motorcycles, you became this this guy that had an answer to a huge problem for a company called Harley Davidson. Yes, and you you began making cases, Mike. How did that all work? Yeah, well, uh, did I interrupt the story? Mike, it's your it's your interview, and if I if I yeah if I'm missing something, Mike, let's go back and talk about it. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I wanted to bring this up because it's a, a, a dear friend of mine, and he just passed away. And um, uh, it, it's Dave McCoy. But when I had my when my shop was early, um, before we moved shops up and all that, we were just a regular Mako dealer. Um, I did like uh, the golden rule and things. So I came in and to my shop, and there was be my shop, and we sat down and, and we talked and. We Hey, Mike, let me interrupt. Mike, Mike, I can't hear you so well, so if you're walking around with your phone or something, uh, try, and, try and stay still while you're talking because uh, we're, we're not getting a good connection. So let's try it again. We were talking about Dave, okay. Dave McCoy from... Uh, um, yeah, Mammoth. Mammoth, uh, go ahead. Can, can you hear me better now? Much, yes. Much better, okay. Um, the story goes like this. I was in my shop one day, and this uh, little old guy comes in, and he starts talking to me about motorcycles and asks me all about the Makos and talking away, and I always love to talk, you know, and so we talked, and we talked, and we must have talked for three or four hours, and I, you know, I didn't think the guy was there to be a customer or anything else like this, mm-hmm. and after about three or four hours, this other truck pulls up out in front of the shop, and a guy jumps out and comes in, 
And Dave goes, listen, um, I want to buy these four bikes here. Four bikes that you you had? Cash out of his pocket (laughs) and goes here. And I'm like just stunned. You know, I, I mean, what? And so, okay, we do the transaction. And the guy that came in was Dennis Agee, who became a great friend. And he's telling me, do you know who you're talking to there? And I go, no, no idea. And he goes, that man owns Mammoth Mountain. I go, wow. That's why I can pull a big wad of money out like that, I guess. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it was just a nice thing. I was just nice to the guy, and we just talked and talked. And he liked me, Dennis told me later, he liked me so much because, uh, you know, I didn't, I wasn't criminal on it to him or nothing. I didn't treat him any different than any other guy. It was just like some old guy, we were sitting around talking. Yes. So we became great friends after that. And I'll tell you, that opened up a world to me of skiing and stuff that was just absolutely incredible. And, it, and then he just passed away here about four months ago at 104 years old. He's the one who started Mammoth Mountain Motocross, and he's the one who made Mammoth Mountain. And he's quite a guy, and I'm just one of these guys I'm really proud to call a friend. Great story, um, Mike. That, that's that's a wonderful thing. I did want to get thing. that in because, it's, yeah, I did want to get that in. It, it is a neat story, and it's, it's uh, yeah, it's a, it just yeah, needed it, to be said. It, it is. So. Uh, now moving on to the Harley Davidson problem to where you resolved something for them. What the heck happened there? Okay. Well, I didn't resolve it for them. I resolved it for all the Harley riders out there in the world. And it wasn't me. I, it, no, it wasn't me alone. Some guys came to me who were, who were you know, Harley guys around, around town. And they said, do you think we could build crankcases? And this is after I had my shop and stuff, and I'm going, well, I can build anything, but we'll need a CNC machine to do it and stuff, And which was real cutting edge back then. In fact, it wasn't in CNC back then. It was NC at first. So they said, we'll put up the money for the machine and all this stuff, and we want you to build these cases. And they had a foundry who was making cases. Now, the trick here was Harley-Davidson will not sell you a set of crankcases unless you turn your other legal set in. Oh, okay, because of so, the numbers, because of the serial numbers? Yeah. Okay. So you can see the market that's there, because a lot of people had a lot of hot Harleys around in those days. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, and and, the, and there was a need for a better cases, and they, these guys wanted to build these bikes and make drag racers out of them and everything else and stuff. So these guys came to me and fronted me up some money, and... This is where my machine shop really took off. We got a CNC machine, and it started making these things, and it was it was big money. We were selling them by the hundreds. Um, companies that you would hear out there now, S&S, yep. which is really the big Harley-Davidson engine builders. Now, back then, they were buying the cases from us. And, uh, you know, after a while, they got figured out they could do them themselves, too, and they took off on their own. That was later on. But this was a great, great job, and it got me into CNC and really setting up a really great machine shop, and it did enough business where we could buy another CNC, and and all of a sudden now we started branching out. Aerospace companies got wind of me and stuff, and they wanted me to start doing things. So, you know, we really started getting away from motorcycles in general, People still come up to me and we still do stuff for them, but I mean, that just wasn't our bailiwick anymore. And we turned into an aerospace business that took off pretty darn good. We had cutting edge stuff. We were one of the first people to ever get four axes in, and you know, now they got six axes, of course, but um, 
you know, it was really, it was a pretty exciting time for me, and we made a lot of money, and it's good points and bad points. We built some of the most, un, gotten some of the most interesting jobs ever. We, I had a job once that we, for San Onofre Nuclear Power Plant, we had to make the emergency preparedness system, which mm-hmm. were sirens that had to put out an incredible amount of energy, and this guy from Edison came to us and, and worked with us and we designed and designed and worked and came up with these sirens and it, it came out to be about a $26 million job and they had to have them by January 1st or they would go offline and that was a hundred thousand dollars a day in revenue. And, it, you know, things were getting really serious. It was, it was really fun stuff. Things were cooking. Now, that's it, for you, sure. You, you also did some things not only with Teledyne, but with Rocketdyne and with Northrop, which is a, a pretty popular name if you if you follow those industries. Yeah, North, Northrop, we got into a little later on. We were we also built a pylon that holds an airplane up in the air with a positioner that moves it just right. Well, this pylon's very complicated. It's a special shape, and it can't be seen by radar, and it there's just a lot of engineering into it and nobody they could ever find could build them right pull the sheet metal around get the right shape make this thing work be perfectly smooth like a car body and then hold a full-size model aircraft up in the air and then have a positioner that could tilt it rotate it and everything with virtually zero tolerance um on position and this became a heck of a project and once we started building these pylons People wanted us to go all over the country and build them for their ranges and all this stuff. And so it was about 10 years of a big heyday there. Wow. It was pretty fun stuff. Got to see a lot of interesting things in that deal. Now, Mike, uh, today on so many houses, and of course, I wouldn't say it's it's something that's very new. It's been around for a long time. But the uh, the solar panel system is is very prevalent today, and everybody's moving toward mm-hmm. that. You were involved with the solar panel, some kind of design uh, way back before it was really in right. vogue. Tell me what you did there well, and, and what your experience with solar panels was. Okay, well, I, uh, when I moved up here to the high desert, mm-hmm. uh, I met a guy up here who was a big wheel in the building of the solar generating plants. They, it, people have probably seen them when they go up 395 at Kramer Junction, and there's some other fields out there. Place. They're huge curved mirrors that focus on a tube that's thousands of feet long and it heats it up and it's it's a pretty complex system. Well, this company went and bought um, bought stuff from, you know, Mexico and Brazil and it was an Israeli company that was building these and they bought all this stuff and they'd get it up here and when things didn't quite fit together or it was a problem, we had to be the ones that fixed that problem or made the thing and... Uh, you know, uh, well, fixed their problems, whatever mm-hmm. it was. And we also made the gauges and things that help line all their posts up to get everything straight. And um, it, it, was, it, was, it was a crazy job. I, we, we made a lot of money. Um, they needed us really badly. They would call us 24-7 to come fix something or come help something or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, we helped. Everything but the power block, we kind of helped build out there. All the mirrors, the hydraulics, everything that made them move, um, everything they forgot to design, we'd have to fix and make a fix for it. And it was kind of funny because you made the fix. Okay, that worked good. Now we need twenty four thousand of them, you know, because <laughs> there was just banks and banks of mirrors. Wow. 
So, yeah, we had a lot to do with building the solar plants up here. Um, uh, they ended up, the company that was building them went bankrupt, but yet they're still there working fine, and they're still on the grid, and they're still putting electricity out. Um, I Once they went bankrupt, they kind of hurt me for a lot of money, too, so uh, we went our own ways, obviously. But, um, yeah, you know, it was, uh, it was early. You're seeing them everywhere now, and this was just a, a, a different kind. It was a kind of just they heated up this tube that had glycerin going through it, and if you got in the way of that beam, it would burn your hand right off. And, you know, there's all these things about okay. the environment and everything with them. But, yeah, it was fun. That was a good job, too. Made a lot of money for a couple of years. Now, Mike, throughout this broadcast, I've been running slides across the screen, and people are probably wondering, why is there a speedboat on there? And it looks like uh, mm. we're, gonna, we're, we're just about there in the conversation. So, in 1999, you built a drag boat for someone, or did you just build the engine? I know it was a record-breaking boat, and it held a record for a lot of years. Tell us about that. How were you involved? Okay, well, where I had my machine shop up here, my next-door neighbor was a kind of a guy like me who liked racing things and liked things that went fast, and he had all kinds of race cars and stuff like this. I took him to the drag boat races one day. Um, the reason why I'll back it up one story back in the 70s, a dear friend of mine and one of my riders, Mike Todd, his dad was the world record holder in top fuel hydro, and he was killed out of Castaic Lake. And I hadn't gone back to the races for quite a while after that. But anyway, I met this my guy next door, and I said, you know, you really ought to come out and see the races now and everything. They have capsules, and people, you know, so safer, and things are a lot better. And I took him to the races, and he goes, you know what? Let's go do that. Let's go build one of these. So, you know, he, he, he bought the hull and, you know, we made everything in between the hull and what holds the motor and everything else. We didn't build the motors, but we built everything but them. The struts, the everything with the props, the shafts, the, you know, the whole nine yards. And I got on their team with them and we went out there and it's just like any drag team. You know, you change the motor every three seconds that it runs. <laughs> and that, uh, you know, my job was magnifying the props and making sure everything was good between every run. And we built a pretty fast boat. Everybody said you can't do it with that little hull. They all had bigger hulls than us and everything. And we won more races in 1999 than anybody ever had in a season. We had the world record for the fastest man on the planet on the water. And uh, it was a pretty fun time. We traveled all over the country and... Um, it's just fun pulling into the pits when you're number one. Everybody's happy, and it was a lot of fun. Yeah, I, um, I, I wish we were still doing it. The guy, guy, kind of, he had a bad crash once, which isn't completely what stopped him. But he um, got involved in drugs and stuff, which kind of made it go the other direction a little bit. And uh, it's kind of too bad because I wish I was still doing it. One, one of my friends that was the crew chief on that is still doing it, and. Uh, I see them once in a while and go to the races, but yeah, that was a fun time. We built a, we built a hell of a boat. It um, there was just no doubt about it. It wasn't a fluke. It won every other week. And top fuel is an exciting thing on the water. I, 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 I people don't realize, you know, a dragster when it leaves. I mean, it's the same motor as a, a dragster that you see today. Mm -hmm. When a dragster leaves, it spins the tires. You don't spin the prop. The prop carves through the water. If you spin the prop, it cavitates. So. A drag boat accelerates faster than a top fuel hydro, and uh, then at the end of the run, you pull parachutes, 
which grab water, not just air. And people's eyeballs will come out of their sockets sometimes. It's so radical. I mean, the inertia is just incredible in those things. It's, it's a crazy, dangerous, wild sport. It was a lot of fun. Um, I wasn't a driver. He offered me to once or twice, but I had just had two little kids then, so I thought it might not be real responsible, so mm. I didn't do it. But yeah, that was a fun time. I had a couple of years of that drag boat. It was pretty cool. Well, Mike, Absolutely. I mean, you, you, you went from, uh, you know, being a machinist. Well, you know, you were, you were a gymnast. You were a machinist. You, you raced motorcycles. You built frames. You did so much in your career. Uh, is really goes off in, in so many different directions. Now, you and uh, Joyce, who I've met a few times, lovely Joyce, I love spending time with you guys whenever we get down to Southern California. In the past, uh, I guess it looks like 15 years, you guys have been heavily involved in the real estate business. So if you can tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, and I did forget one other thing to talk about here too, but I'll bring back that later. Um, yeah, we, uh, yeah, I became a realtor in 2004, and when Joyce... Um, came to me, which was a wonderful thing because I had two little babies in my arms and uh, she took me on, which was a hell of a thing. Long story there. But anyway, we, uh, yeah, we, I got into real estate and she was a counselor at schools and they closed the counseling department and she decided, well, shoot, maybe I'll do this with you. And we started doing real estate together. And then, you know, about five, six years ago, she got a broker's license and we just opened our own little company up here. And, um, yeah, we sell nice homes to people. It's it looks fun. We, yeah, it, it looks like it. I, I follow, uh, I follow you obviously, uh, on Facebook for the motorcycle stuff. Yes. But I always enjoy seeing some of the homes you've been selling, the prices that they're selling for the locations. And it seems like you've got a, a real great business there. What is the name of your real estate business, Mike? Well, it's Crown Realty Services, okay. um, and then it's DBA, Joyce, Chamberlain Broker, and all that, but it's Crown Realty Services, yeah. Now, many of the pictures that we've seen throughout the slideshow while we're doing this interview, so many of them on the bottom say Scott Highbrink. He's such a wonderful yeah. photographer. He's taken so many pictures uh, throughout his career, and so many of you especially, but you told me that's how you really came full circle by Scott telling you about social media and things like that. How did that all... Well, that yeah, that's, this was the life-changing thing for me. I mean, uh, you know, I, we were doing real estate and whatever and, and doing normal things people do, but there was nothing really exceptional going on in our lives. And he, Scott says, you know, he, he, I'm on Facebook because I got out for real estate. Scott friends me, and he goes, Mike, you got to come back out to some races. And I'm going, nobody is going to know who I am. I'm not going back out to races. <laughs> I don't want to do that. And he dragged me out to Marty Tripe's race where the, they had the Carlsbad thing where they poured dirt all over the track and stuff out there at mm -hmm. uh, one of his races. And uh, it was just amazing. I mean, people are coming up to me right and left. I mean, here's Rick Salmon. Here's John DeSoto. I mean, here's, here's I don't mean Rick Salmon. I meant um, Super Hunky. Rick uh, Salmon, sure. Lots of guys. It, it, people going up, man, I bought bikes from you, all this stuff. And I'm just going, I, I just couldn't believe it. And... So, yeah, we're, I'm, I'm all of a sudden now I'm on Facebook and we're, all these people that we used to know are just popping up and popping up. And they started having all these reunions and gatherings. Mm -hmm. And to me, one of the most rewarding things ever, uh, this whole fraternity of people is back together now. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I see Preston Petty every other day. I see, I see John DeSoto. I stay with John DeSoto when I go to Hawaii. I, 
you know, uh, all these people, we would have never, ever, ever gotten together if it wasn't for Facebook. And all this would have been forgotten. So there's a big debt of gratitude owed to them for that. And this is like, you know, we're legends and heroes has kind of stepped in. They want to try and preserve the past, Mm -hmm. you know, which is kind of what I think is kind of a neat thing. And they inducted me in their little Hall of Fame. And I've been real supportive of them and trying to keep get, keep that thing going here good. Uh, I think it's just a neat thing for the kids to kind of understand what we did way back then. Some are interested, some aren't, but, you know. I agree with you. You, you, never, asked me, you never asked me about one fun thing. When I was getting out of racing and I wasn't doing it serious and I was just playing around, a buddy of mine comes and goes, hey, come ride the side hack with me. Well, this guy was the craziest guy you ever known in your life. And he took a Honda 750 and built a motor, and he made a side hack out of a Honda 750. There were no four-cylinders, anything, anywhere. And we went out, and we won every race we entered, or else we broke. We never lost a race. It was the oh, time. I, 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 I had a lot of fun riding side hacks. That's all I wanted to throw in. That's no, all. I, I think that was an important part of uh, important part of the conversation, too, Mike. I... I do get a little off track sometimes myself, and uh, I, I see topics that I want to get to. But uh, right now, Mike, I want to thank you for taking the time to speak to me. Um, your career was sure. a, career was amazing. You've done so many different things, and uh, I look forward to seeing you. Uh, you know, when things get back to normal here, hopefully in the very near future. But for right now, I want to thank yeah. Mike Chamberlain for being my guest today on Vintage Motocross Radio. Mike, I'll see you soon. Thanks for having me, buddy. I sure appreciate it. You Talk are so you welcome. Bye for right. now. Talk to you later. Mike Chamberlain. Boy, he's been around the block with a, a bunch of different things. I want to thank Mike Chamberlain for being my guest today. And once again, I want to thank my sponsors who help support everything here. Amsoil, Preston Petty, and Vintco. Join me on Wednesday night for Vintage Motocross Q&A. That's also a live broadcast every Wednesday at 6 o'clock Pacific Standard Time. On that show this week, I'll be announcing my guests that will be on this show next Sunday. Till I talk to you next time, be well. This is Joe Abadi for Vintage Motocross Radio.